This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey everybody, this is Lane with the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast. Today I have Amy Wan on the line. How's it going, Amy? It's good. How about you, Lane? Good. So I met Amy, who is a syndication attorney at in Oakland earlier or last year, 2016, and you gave a cool speech on all things syndication and part some partnership stuff. And you're really elegant in your speech. And I was like, well, I got to meet this girl. And <laughs> uh, the rest was history. Here you're on the podcast here to spread your word to the listeners of Simple Passive Cashflow. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on the show. So, Amy, why don't we go into your uh, background a little bit? And you've got some background in real estate investing, even though you're more on the syndication side. Sure. So, my family has kind of always been in real estate. So, it's kind of just been in my blood. How I personally got into real estate outside of my family business is I actually. Uh, was general counsel of essentially an online hard money lender that branded itself as a real estate crowdfunding platform. That company is Patch of Land. I was employee, I think probably four or five. And so I basically led their legal team for the first two years of that company and basically learned everything about crowdfunding when it was still very new and learned all about real estate. I guess you could call it debt syndication, but essentially hard money lending. I left early last year and actually joined my outside counsel, which is the law firm I'm with now. I'm a partner there. The law firm is Trowbridge Sedoti. It's also widely known as crowdfundinglawyers.net. And basically there, I work on the equity side, although the law firm does do both notes and equity syndications. As far as my own real estate portfolio, you know, I... I've invested on the private money side for fix and flips. I've done fundrises e-read. I was actually talking to you earlier last year about turnkeys before I decided to start my own company, which is, you know, it actually serves real estate syndicators. And so for the time being, that's where a lot of my cash is going. I thought it was pretty interesting that you as the syndication attorney who's doing all these agreements or even seeing a lot of these JV partnership agreements come across your desk that you a lot of times you're not able to invest alongside and it's a conflict of interest. Yeah, so it's really funny actually. I basically represent anyone who's trying to raise capital. So, you know, I have a lot of real estate syndicator and investor clients as well as a lot of startup clients. And the ones that I really want to either take equity in or invest in are obviously my real estate clients because it's so much harder for a real estate deal to go sideways. Whereas for startups, the failure rate is that much higher. But it always ends up being the startup clients that ask for me to take equity instead of charging fees or something of the sort. But it is unfortunate. It is a bit of a conflict of interest. Our malpractice insurance actually does go up as a law firm to the extent that we take equity in clients. And it's unfortunate because I think my clients are the best. Yes, I get an approach for these startup syndications, more for tech kinds of things, especially being in Seattle. And I know a lot of my friends in San Francisco and being one of the younger people, I think it's very common to be pitched for these startups. But again, I don't touch that stuff at 10 foot pole. <laughs> I mean, in real estate, you have hard asset that has brick and more value where all this tech stuff. I mean, I think we're kind of in a tech bubble 2.0 a little bit. 
Yeah, well, here's the thing at the end of the day. As an investor, right, what I see across the real estate and the tech fields as an investor is the same thing. At the end of the day, it really comes down to the sponsor, the person who's running the company or the management, right? They have to be very competent. They have to know how to hustle. They have to instill a sense of trust that they are, in fact, going to be able to pull through on their business plan. So whether it is a tech startup or whether it is them taking down, you know, a a 300 unit property, at the end of the day, it's the same qualities that make a good investable deal. I think a lot of times people just look at the IRRs on the projections page and of course, a startup is going to be huge IRs because it's, it's, it's tech. It's pretty lean. There's always an if, right? Like, you know, the, the Raiders will win the game if somebody runs for a thousand <laughs> yards, right? Like, it's kind of the same thing. Really. Yeah. I feel like real estate transactions are underwritten a lot more conservatively with real world projections. I think that at the end of the day, because real estate is a hard asset, it's tangible. You can go touch it, right? It's something that people understand. If there's one thing that's been true over the past 60 years, it is that even though there are market cycles, real estate just keeps going up. And for that sponsor who maybe doesn't have as much hustle or maybe is not as persistent as you'd like them to be, real estate can be a little bit more forgiving. I think tech startups tend to be much harder. And high like risk, you, high reward. <laughs> and like you said, we talked about getting some turnkey rentals for you, but I totally agree with the path you're heading. I mean, I've had a few other people who approach me and, you know, they say they're working on a startup and that's their highest and best use to pour all their funds, not their thirty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 into a few turnkey rentals, but into their own business. But for most people, it's not like that, much the minority. It totally goes along with the highest and best use theory. Right. I mean, look, I think turnkeys, real estate investments in general are a great thing. It just so happens that I feel that this company is kind of my my life mission, my life calling. I'll tell you, I didn't go to law school to become finance attorney. I actually went to law school to be a human rights attorney. And for very many reasons, right, I ended up following the money instead because I thought that when you follow the money or when you have money, that's when you can make a lot more things happen. And so what I want to do with the law and I may be starting with real estate syndication at first is I really want to democratize it. I want to make it so that everyday people can actually have access to counsel, access to an attorney and not just rich people, because if you think about it, poor people get pro bono counsel, rich people might be able to afford an expensive attorney, but there's really nothing for all those people in the middle. And that you know, the middle class is our biggest class. Right. Kind of like when they pick you up and throw you in the cop car, they say you will be assigned a public defendant and that guy is going <laughs> to represent you pretty poorly. <laughs> well, I do respect the works that my public defender colleagues do. It's it's not an easy job. <laughs> so like you mentioned, syndication, building a PPM and the full-blown, and it's a, it's a very expensive document and it is kind of a closed community. Uh, why don't you take us back? I mean, that's the, traditional sense but you know recently with the jobs act things started opening up these crowdfunding sites maybe take us through the history and where we came from and where we are today Sure. So syndication is nothing more than the structuring of a deal. People talk about I'm raising capital, PPM and a subscription agreement. It's not so much the PPM and the subscription agreement 
in and of itself that's important. It's how all the documents work together, how everything is structured, and making sure that you answer any and all questions beforehand in writing so that one, two, three years down the road, when something happens or if something happens, you know, a really expensive lawsuit. So real estate really is the structure of a deal. Crowdfunding, I think a lot of people say that crowdfunding is online syndication. And and yes, that is the simple explanation. To be more precise, crowdfunding is actually a methodology. So the traditional methodology, which I'm sure you and all your listeners understand, it's all been offline on a very personal basis, right? I meet you, we go grab a cup of coffee, I tell you about what I'm doing, you indicate that you might be interested in investing in some ideals one day, and so I put you on my list. I, as the syndicator, maybe I start growing a list you know, several different people, and I pursue a, a very personal relationship with each one of my investors. That's the traditional method, and that's what we call a private placement or a 506B raise, which is under Regulation D. Now, crowdfunding, there's actually three crowdfunding laws. Crowdfunding is actually a methodology in how you're raising the capital. So instead of taking that very offline approach, suddenly, under these new rules, we are allowed to tell the world about our deal. So we can tweet about IRR, we can post it on LinkedIn, we can post it on our Facebook, we can slap the deal on our website and take funds online, perhaps without even ever talking to the investor, although I I really still think you should have a conversation with the investor. It's just a different way. Instead of that one-on-one offline interaction, it tends to become a more online, broad-based type of advertising. Now, the real difference between what most real estate crowdfunding platforms are doing today is called 506C. And that is a a new rule that became effective as of late 2013 under the JOBS Act. Now, the difference between the two is whereas under your traditional raise, you could not openly advertise your deal. You had to have a pre-existing relationship with your investor. You did not have to actually verify that they're accredited. They could self-certify or you could use another methodology. And you could take theoretically up to 35 sophisticated but non-accredited investors. Now under 506C or this new methodology, you can openly advertise or solicit. You can only take accredited investors. So no more of those 35 friends and family. You do not have to have that pre-existing relationship with your investors. But what you have to do, and I tell all my clients that the SEC giveth, the SEC taketh away. What that means is the more leeway they give you, the more they're going to ask for something in return. Under 506C, you do have to actually verify the accredited status of your investors. That those four things tend to be the make or break point as to whether someone pursues a 506B deal or a 506C deal. All right, let's, so let's take a little break here and let's talk a little bit about accredited investors and sophisticated investors. And let me take a shot at the accredited. So currently, United States Securities and Exchange Commission defines an accredited investor as someone who makes at least $200,000 single or $300,000 married or has a net worth of a million dollars excluding their primary residence. And that's a big mm-hmm. one. 
the uh, significance of being an accredited investor is that they think that you can withstand losing your money. I guess that at one time the government wanted to protect the small guy and don't want to have him put in their last $50,000 in this deal that could go south. And they thought by protecting these people, a lot of people say, you know, it's like giving, not allowing people who got into a car accident, not allowing them to drive anymore. It's kind of the same thing. But the other thing that you mentioned was the sophisticated investor. And there's a lot more gray area. And I'll let you give us your take on that. Sure. A sophisticated investor is basically someone who is not an accredited investor. So basically not a rich person, right? But they are someone who you may think is sophisticated enough to understand the risks of the deal. For example, normally on our subscription agreements, we have these lines that investors can fill in on a 506B deal. And it'll ask, how are you sophisticated? How do you understand? How do you have the education or the knowledge to understand the risks of these deals? And people will fill in anything from, oh, I am an experienced real estate investor. I got an MBA. I was VP of finance. I was a finance major in undergrad. There is no one definition of what makes for a sophisticated investor. You just have to justify and prove to the issuer or the sponsor that you understand the risks of the investment and you know that you could lose all of your money. Now, I will say this. The whole accredited, sophisticated investor concept is one that the SEC has been discussing for the past few years about changing. In some ways, they want to increase the scope or the size of the pool of people who would be an accredited investor. And in other ways, they are also looking to narrow it. So for example, one proposal that they're currently talking about is, for example, allowing into the definition of an accredited investor anyone who has an MBA, for example, because the government or the SEC presumes that MBAs are pretty sophisticated and understand the risks. However, at the same time, these two or $300,000 income thresholds, they're actually thinking about increasing because those limits were set several decades ago and haven't been adjusted for inflation. When I got smart and sold my primary residence to start investing in investments that actually made sense, woo, I needed a place to diversify quickly as opposed to some money market or some high reward checking account. Let's face it, turnkey rentals are cool and syndications are great, but they don't come around often. I stumbled upon the American Homeowner Preservation Fund. The owner, George Newmary, once apartment syndicator too, is now sponsoring the podcast. His fund cuts the middlemen out to crowdfund the solution to the mortgage crisis in America. They are empowering you to fund the purchase of distressed mortgages and earn returns that smoke any other passive fund. If you find something else better out there, let me know. Oh yeah, they work with families to keep them in their home after buying the underwater note at a huge discount. It's an opportunity to make an impact on families and communities while earning returns. Start investing with as little as 100 bucks in investinahp.com. If you want the free Burn Zone book, please send me an email at lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. Yeah, a couple of thoughts there. It's a little frustrating that these private placements, if you know you find the right people, the returns are a lot higher. And in a way, it's kind of keeping the lower class and middle class out of these pretty good investments. 
and now their only option is for the garbage in the stock markets and mutual funds. <laughs> just a little ironic. And, and then going back to your talk about the sophisticated investor, my little add-in there is if someone has a rental and they've been running it for a year or two, in my opinion, that's you understand the risks and rewards of real estate. Sure. I hear your frustration on the whole accredited investor concept. It's something that a lot of issuers grumble about. I unfortunately am not the government, so you should go write a letter to your congressperson. <laughs> I think you and I are, you know, the late Gen Y, early millennial, and we we don't like this country club thing. And I enjoy the idea of crowdfunding, and I think that the sophisticated and accredited split is just very difficult for a lot of people to get around. I get it. I mean, honestly, that's still. Why a lot of our clients tend to use five six B today because they do want to take at least a couple of friends and family. Now I will tell you that I think that is one of the benefits of crowdfunding. The reason I joined Patch of Land in the very beginning is because I come from a family that does real estate, but I get that. A lot of good deals they happen in country clubs. I understand that as an Asian American female, I do not look like your average real estate investor, and I know that as a result, a lot of people won't approach me with good deals, right? And so, the beauty about crowdfunding, I think, is you're democratizing two things. On one hand, you're democratizing access to capital. Right, and on the other, you're also democratizing access to investment opportunity. And 506C, which I mentioned earlier, is basically accredited crowdfunding. There are two other regulations that, that basically are crowdfunding for non-accredited investors, or what we call the crowd. Now, one of those I think is very useful for real estate investors. Another one I think is perhaps less useful. I really enjoy what you're doing with the syndication bot. I mean, it's just like how Uber's taking down the big stranglehold that taxis almost had, and how Airbnb is democratizing hotel rooms by you know, taking power away from the hotels. In a way, the whole crowdfunding is taking the power away from all these theoretical country clubs that have been holding these deals so long to themselves. Yeah. To add on to your point, what I'm trying to do with syndication bot is what I've seen. Especially over the past years, I've gotten so many calls from people in, on a daily, weekly basis. People who either have small deals or people who are just beginning syndicators. Who beginning syndicators tend to have a higher failure rate, just because it tends to take a couple of times before you do your first successful deal, right? And so. What I'm trying to do with syndication bot is basically create an alternative for people who might not be able to afford the services of an attorney for that really small deal, especially deals under one or two million dollars, and for beginning syndicators who have a lot more to lose, right? And so, basically, what syndication bot does is it go ahead and automates to some certain extent. Real estate syndication documents, so that instead of having to pay the minimum for an attorney, which is going to be anywhere from ten to fifteen thousand dollars, which that doesn't make sense for a three hundred thousand dollar deal, 
at least you can use this other alternative and it's better to use something rather than nothing or going with a handshake agreement or trying to take your previous documents and just messing them up, which I've seen before as well. I think it just allows someone to sleep better at night and still protect themselves. Yeah, so once you uh, explain the protections that the syndicator gets and the investors get when they go through a subscription like the PPM and Right. So basically, the legal documents around real estate syndication, it's basically a contract between the sponsor and all the investors about all the terms of the deal, right? Everything from what will be the distribution to what happens if the manager doesn't perform. It's all laid out as an agreement so that at least we're agreeing on all these things up front so that one day, maybe five to seven years down the road, when something happens, investors aren't happy, whatever it might be, that there is a procedure for everyone to follow instead of everyone just going and getting in a fight and end up getting into really expensive litigation. The other thing that is really important is that it lays out the structure of the deal. And the structure of the deal is often the most important or crucial point for every single deal. Even experienced syndicators, deal from deal, they'll go and maybe use a different structure because what I want to do with project A may not be good for project B. And lastly, the importance of a PPM is that it literally is a 60 to 100 page document, which I know not everybody reads, but at least it puts out there every single risk we can think of regarding this deal, whether it's the fact that the sponsor may have a conflict of interest because they're going to be doing other deals, the fact that they won't be devoting all their time to this project. The real estate market is cyclical. We'll put in disclosures specifically around public storage or multifamily or whatever it is, the property that you're doing, because the more risks we inform investors about upfront, the less they have to complain about down the line. You know who reads those PPMs, Amy? engineers oh my gosh yeah i think you know i i i find that finance people attorneys uh people with professional or technical trainings they will go through and actually ask questions about specific sentences and then there's a whole nother crop of investors who they will either never read it or they'll read it once and then not after that so not for any other deal so I've seen the whole gamut of investors. I've had investors of clients come back and try and negotiate the PPM with me or negotiate, you know, a certain term of the deal, uh, which is unusual. So we've we've really seen everything under the sun. You know, personally, I just pay to do it. Some people are like, well, I'm going to go fly to Birmingham and look at these properties. I'm like, dude, what are you going to do when you get there? You're like, you don't know anything. Like, give me a 120-page document and I'm reading through it. I mean, I don't know what I'm looking at. So, you know, I'm sympathetic about a lot of people feeling very intimidated by these documents. We in particular do try to make them easy to read and very digestible and understandable. I would say, though, that in my normal course of practice, I actually make every single one of my clients read the draft of their PPM to make sure that what we've drafted as attorneys about their business actually reflects their business and what they're looking for in the deal. And I think that's important. And I think you'd also be surprised, you know, 
the first time I read a PPM, I had no idea what it was saying. But you read a couple of these things and honestly, maybe three or four PPMs down the road, it becomes cheesecake. You automatically know which sections to to go look at, which sections you can ignore. I know reading legal documents is not the bright part of everyone's day. And I do think the drafting should be left to attorneys, especially on higher risk deals. But I still think it is very important to know what your attorneys are actually saying about your business. So what do you think for an investor who gets sent this 120-page PPM via PDF and what, what should they do? Should they just take it to an attorney for review and comment? Well, people don't normally comment on PPM. So that's um, – they may try to negotiate terms, especially with beginning syndicators, less so with you know um, successful syndicators with – uh, a track record, right? Those those folks can kind of dictate whatever terms they want so that so long as they are not incredibly out of line with what we see in the market. Now, investors are obviously always encouraged um, to read the PPM. And actually, if you go through your documents, you'll actually see that there is language Um, In your documents, that basically says you are presumed to have read these documents and fully understand and acknowledge what they say. Now, if you're going to sign those documents and you didn't read it, that's your own fault. Um, I know not everyone reads them. I know some people go through them with a fine tooth comb, right? So it really depends on your investors. Some just tend to be more sophisticated than others. And, you know, that's that's just another reason why, for example, um, a lot of people do prefer to stick with accredited investors because, you know, there's they're presumed to have this higher level of sophistication that non-accredited investors do not have. Or, you know, maybe non-accredited investors just are not going to read the documents. I think from the syndicator's point of view, the only reason you would get a a sophisticated investor who really doesn't have too much capital to invest is you're hoping that they will grow with you. Exactly. A a lot of these minimums now are $50,000, but you'll get a, you know, you'll get a $25,000 here and there. But most of that, I mean, I would do that just for marketing. If I can get somebody to invest $25,000 and then, you know, the deal goes very well, you know, that's, that's word of mouth just spreads and spreads and spreads. So, so that's an interesting it. point that you bring up. The whole reeling in, um, you know, early earlier stage successful people, the next partners of large law firms or the next, you know, uh, manage, manager at PwC or whatever it might be, right? I literally just had this conversation with a client yesterday. Um, you know, a strategy that we are starting to see a lot of our pretty successful real estate syndicator clients take, especially to the to the extent that they have a following, right, or they might be a real estate instructor, is, you know, over the years, a lot of them have accumulated these massive uh, email listservs of either students or just people who uh, they've mentored or, or are just really interesting in investing in their deals. And traditionally, uh, these folks have not been able to take money from, you know, a lot of these non-accredited people and their listservs. 
one of the uh, newer crowdfunding regulations that's come out. It's uh, been effective since mid 2015, so roughly a year and a half now, is something called Regulation A+. Now, Regulation A+, actually lets uh, someone raise up to $50 million every 12 months from non-accredited investors. This regulation was actually designed for operational companies, so those tech startups for, you know, the next Teslas of the world. In actuality, uh, the most successful applications of this regulation and actually what we're starting to see with increasing frequency is that real estate people are actually using Reg A+. Um, for the exact, uh, you know, purpose that you mentioned, for for some of these uh, real estate syndicators, they are trying to bring in money from that crowd that they traditionally have not been able to access, but who have always wanted to invest in their deals. For others, they're trying to bring on or reel in earlier stage investors, right? The people who today might be in year one or two of their medical residency, but tomorrow will be full-fledged doctors or today are just starting off as associates of law firms and in a couple of years will have a lot more money to play with. And then, you know, we've had people who have approached us to basically bring in a level of community engagement using a Reggae Plus. So, you know, I got approached re- uh, recently by a couple of people who have been wanting to put up hotels and apartment buildings. And instead of going out and getting only private capital, institutional capital, family office capital, they are reserving a part of that capital stack to go to the local community and say, hey, why don't you guys invest in this project in this town? Every time you have family and friends uh, come into town for a visit, recommend our hotel to them and we'll give them you know, a 10% discount. So you're basically filling up the occupancy rate of your own property or even on the multifamily side. Their their whole theory is, hey, maybe if we get our tenants to invest in this building on their way out, they're not going to pour concrete down the drains. So there's a lot of really interesting applications I see today with Reg A+. And I see that as a very popular method of real estate crowdfunding going into the future. Let me talk a little bit about the, the open fund where there's no restrictions on like what they're investing oh, in. And right. then their traditional, hey, they were buying this property at 123 Main Street. It's a 300 unit. Right. So there's actually different types of syndication, right? What we mostly see is single asset syndication, which is, hey, I found this property. I've got it under contract. I know the property address, right? So we can actually identify the property. And then we'll write the whole deal structure around that property. Now, there are other types of syndications. For example, what you're talking about, this open fund, that's actually called a blind pool. That means I don't have a property identified today. All I really have is a business plan, right? Maybe my plan is that I am going to find um, uh, multifamily apartment building in class B neighborhoods, in these tertiary markets. Um, Maybe it's just on the West Coast. Maybe it is uh, nationwide, right? And so I identify a business plan 
instead of a specific property. And instead, people actually uh, invest money in that plan and count on me to execute. Um, So, you know, a syndication doesn't always mean that you have to specifically have a specific property under contract. Now, there's also something in the middle, and that's what we call a semi-specified offering. For example, I'm working on a deal right now where the client has identified one property, but this fund is actually for two to three properties. So they've identified one, they've set a business plan out for the others, and so you kind of have a better sense of what the fund is going to consist of. And so, you know... For that one, it's half kind of like a blind pool and half kind of like a specified offering. But really, I've seen everything. You can do whatever you want as your deal. The caveat being that you have to actually go get people to invest in it. And you have to, at the end of the day, at least have a plan. And what I will say, what I think is very helpful advice to people is that your investors in a specified offering may not be the same investors who invest in a blind pool. What we've seen over the years is that investors tend to have specific types of investment appetites. Someone who invests in a blind pool actually may not invest in a semi in a in a specified offering, right? And so sometimes when you're doing different types of syndication, essentially what you're doing is catering to different types of investment appetites. Yeah, some people I've been talking to, they want to do the multifamily, you know, this 200 unit in particular. Others are just like, I don't know, just I just want to put all my money in this and just give me, you know, diversify my money for me. So I think that's right. what you're talking about. All right, Amy, talked about a lot of different things here. I think what we'll do is we'll cut it short and then maybe people can email in with any questions and maybe we can do a Ask Amy from time to time. Plus with your contact information and for people to get a hold of you. Great, sure. So my personal website is amywanlaw.com. Our law firm website is crowdfundinglawyerswithans.net and the website of the new company that I'm working on that basically automates small real estate syndication deals is syndicationbot.com. And thanks so much, Lane, for having me on the show. Yeah, no problem, Amy. And right now, me and Amy both do the same thing where we uh, have open calls from, you know, people want to go on our calendar and set up a call. I know one one of these days, we'll both stop doing that. But for the current moment, it's both calendars are both open. Yes, yes. One day. (laughs) One day. All right. Thank you so much, Lane. All right. Thanks, Amy. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.